As a pastor, I'm constantly concerned about how to create connections beyond just the weekend services. And one of the valuable tools that we have found for achieving this at our church is our app powered by Subsplash. It's one thing to have an app. It's another thing to have an app that has the ability to allow your community to access messages, resources, and even give. And Subsplash created that for us. It's become our go-to platform for connecting with our congregation in ways we never could have before. Subsplash is so much more than just a platform or even just an app. It brings people together, empowers giving, and transforms lives. If you're interested in learning more, I encourage you to visit their website at subsplash.com. That's S-U-B-S-P-L-A-S-H.com. Subsplash.com. Leadership doesn't have to be hard, and leadership can be for everybody. On this podcast, we want to help you make leading simple. I'm your host, Rusty George. Hey, well, welcome back to Simple Faith. We are so glad that you're with us today. Have you ever wondered, is it okay to go to church online? Am I missing something? Should I maybe go back to a physical church? If I'm going to a physical church, am I missing something online? These are great questions. As a pastor, you might be wondering, should I even offer online services? Am I taking something away from our people? Many of us pastors got upset at the end of COVID because people were just staying online and not coming back. Was that okay? Well, these are great questions that we've all wrestled with. And today to answer them is Dr. James Emery White. He's a pastor of a church out of North Carolina that he planted and now runs over 10,000 people. He's also an author and a professor, and he's an incredible individual. And today, his latest book is going to be the topic of our conversation, Hybrid Church, Understanding the Role of Physical and Digital Church. Even if you're not a pastor, I think you're really going to get something out of this. And he's just a bright mind with great insight. So enjoy my conversation with Dr. James Emery White. Here we go. Well, Dr. White, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Uh, it's an honor to have you on. For our listeners that uh, aren't as familiar with you as I am, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, my. Um, <laughs> what would be most important? My wife, Susan, we've been married almost 40 years. Um, we have four children, 15 grandchildren. Um, hmm. I've had the privilege of, of planting a church uh, Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte and, uh, and, uh, have led that now for, um, over 30 years. And so those would probably be the main headlines. I've always had my kind of like one foot in academia, one foot in the, in the church and have loved both of those worlds and the interplay between them, but devoted most of my, my, my thinking to the study and the interplay of church and culture. And so that is, uh, kept me busy. Well, it's a fascinating uh, journey you've been on because you decided to plant a church, uh, I'm assuming probably around the age of 30, is that right? Yeah, it was 1992. I'm 61. So yes. Okay. Wow. So typically people that plant a church are in their early 20s and they're just dumb enough to give it a try (laughs) and uh, because it's such a challenging work and you went for it. I did. It kind of like when... Older people talk about walking two miles in the snow to school. Yeah, I talk about okay, I did it. You know, I showed up in a city in a U-Haul. We had no money, no people, no building, no nothing. You know, and all you guys now show up in these big T 
teams of eight or 10 couples, like you're a sitcom of friends and you have all this money that you've got, you know, and it's like, oh, I just want to go. I did in church planning. <laughs> yeah. But no, but there's so much truth to that. I mean, the parachute drop that, that so many churches have done and did back in the nineties is. I mean, the average church planner was bivocational by necessity. Right. Exactly. So how did you decide to plan a church? What made you and your wife think, hey, let's do this? Yeah. I never wanted to be a pastor. I really did think my life was, was uh, going to be academia. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, what happened was, was to, to make a very long story short, I was, when I was, during my PhD years, I was pastoring a church that was extremely dysfunctional. <laughs> you know, it was really not a healthy church. And, um, and it just cemented for me that I never wanted to be a pastor, never wanted to put my family through anything like that kind of world. Hmm. And but I would lie awake at night and dream of what church could be like. Hmm. It really had this kind of perverse effect on me, and it kind of dr- drove me to the scriptures and drove me theologically to what is the doctrine of ecclesiology and what is the role of the church. Because I was sitting there wanting nothing at all to do with it and not feeling that that was where God was even moving or even cared about. And uh, what happened was I, I both kind of came to a point where I didn't knew I didn't want to pastor a church, but I also came to the conclusion that the church is what really was the hope of the world, was what God had intended, and it was the primary, it was in the vanguard of everything he wanted to do. And it really was the heart of his great redemptive plan. And so, um, uh, but things began to continue to turn for me and turn for me, and I began to just realize that not only was the church the hope of the world, not only was the church what God you know, was the heart of Christ's plan for reaching this world. But if the church could really ever be the way the the church was meant to be, then it could bring together certainly everything that I ever dreamed of and anything that anyone else could ever dream of. It'd be the life of the mind, the life of the heart, the life of evangelism and ministry and worship and all of these different things. It could all come together in this dynamic community, unlike anything else. And uh, unlike, for me, academia or you know, anything else. And so I, I just, I fell in love with the idea of church. I fell in love with the Acts 2 vision of church. And I also fell in love with how uh, how thrilling it would be to throw a life into the building of a church and throwing what few gifts I had into the mix. Hmm. And so, um, and my wife felt the same way. And boy, have we never looked back. Yeah. 30 years. That is a, that is quite a legacy. And, and your church is remarkable in what it has continued to do, and you continue to be experimenting with how do we do this even better and keep reaching unchurched people. You know, the, the thing that happens to a lot of churches when they grow, then they just become keepers of the aquarium rather than fishers of men, and, and you guys have continued to reach out to unchurched people, which I just find extraordinary and, and motivating. Tell us about the early days, because the early days of church planning, that's when you have the most crazy stories and and you, you're, you're, in, you're just life on life kind of, and we don't even know if we're going to make it and those kind of days. I mean, what were some of those moments like that kept you thinking, boy, <laughs> I don't know what we got ourselves into. <laughs> I mean, for me, it, it was right out of the, right out of the, right out of the shoot. It was, uh, we, like I said, I had no people, no money, no building, nothing. L- literally, we did show up in a U-Haul and uh for charlotte and this was back when charlotte was not a top tier city nobody was talking about charlotte it wasn't on anybody's top 10 15 top 50 demographic sites particularly the north side of charlotte where we went um, it was just farmland and um, but we wanted to go where we were both 
sent to go by churches and invited by churches in that area to come. Hmm. Something I cared about very deeply, not just kind of, as you mentioned, the word parachuting in, like just telling all the nearby churches, hey, guess what? We're here. I really wanted to go someplace where the local pastors, local churches felt there was a need and we're, we're actually inviting a church planter in. And so um, anyway, that's, a, that's another story. Uh, but but in the, the very first Sunday, very first weekend, it was October 4th of 1992. Um, you know, what little money I had scraped up from friends and family and fundraising and such, I had spent on a direct mailer to the community um, to say, hey, got nothing better to do, come to this church, you know, that was starting in a Hilton Hotel ballroom, no less. That was the only place we could find. And I remember that it had a picture of me and Susan and our then three kids. We've had a fourth, but had, had our then three kids, a picture of a, in a park, you know, sunny day, you know, hey, really, you know, got nothing better to do, come to this new church to start. And on, the, on that day, October 4th of 1992, the aftermath of Tropical Storm Earl struck the Carolinas. Oh, my 70 mile per hour winds, power was out, heavy surf advisories. It was, it was a, it was rainfall records that had stood for decades were broken. It was just an incredible, awful time. And there I was at all I'd, I'd done was sent out this mailer <laughs> and the service was at 10 o'clock. And I remember at five minutes before 10, not a soul had come, not one soul. And I just had a meager band of, I don't know, a dozen or so people that I'd you know, local churches that were trying to help get this planted and others had, you know, served and volunteered and things in there. And, and so I just kind of rallied that small band and I said, you know, we'll just, nobody's coming out in this. I mean, most people don't even have power. Yeah. And I said, so we'll just treat today like a rehearsal and hope that next week, maybe there's some residual value from the mailer. And I went into one of the back little service hallways of the hotel. And I remember I just went, oh, God. God, I don't get you. I don't get this. I don't get it. Um, you know, you're supposed to be in charge of the wind and the rain and the weather. You called me here and all this stuff. And then this, I said, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, I love you and I trust you, but I just don't get it. And I was devastated because I literally did not know where my next meal was coming from. I literally did not. I mean, you talk about burning your ships at the shore. I mean, I, I was, it was devastating and as a, as a father and as a husband and everything, it was just devastating. Mm -hmm. So I went out and, um, and I had spent five minutes exercising my enormous spiritual maturity back in that hallway, <laughs> came out and entered the back of the auditorium. And between five minutes till 10 and 10, when I'd been back there, 112 people came. Wow. 112 wet, dripping, beautiful people. Wow. I know I counted them multiple times. And, um, and that was how Met got started. And then through the strength of my, my speaking abilities, we were at 56 by the third week. <laughs> um, and, and even that was misleading because in a hotel, like, I, you know, we would joke that if somebody just walked by the doors and paused <laughs> and listened for a minute That's all and they didn't come in, they kept walking, they count, we counted them. Yes, but anyway, 56. And so that meant that, that um, when, if you had like, you know, 15 or so, 20 back in children's ministry. So I was starting with a group of, you know, 25 people, maybe 20 sitting in seats because, you know, eight or nine might've been on stage. So, you know, a lot of people, you know, I always kid people, you know, I don't think if anybody has started with a smaller church than I did. Yeah. 
um, or, or more modest. And so MEC started very modestly and, and it was, so the, and the church planning years and the church planning months were very, very difficult, very difficult financially. Um, and, um, and just, but, you know, God was so ridiculously faithful. And so, so many just, I, I mean, nothing but God things. It can only be explained by the intervention of the living God, mm. uh, both financially and every other way. And so ours, ours was a story, and I think it's a healthier story, to be honest with you. It's not a story of, oh, zero to a thousand first year. I just, I've never liked those stories. I mean, God bless it when it happens, but I just, it's not normal. Mm-hmm. It's not always healthy. And if you get that in your head as a church planner, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment. I think the the typical church that does well is going to grow in a very slow but steady way. You have some years better than others, but, you know, I mean, I mean, Mech is in the thousands and thousands and thousands now, but man, we didn't start that way. Right. And where we are now is because of 30 plus years. And, and, and I think that's a, that's a, that's a healthier model. So we were, you know, maybe 200 or so by the end of our first year. And then just began to grow from there, you know, 200 to 300 or 400 and 500 and so on. And, and I think in a way that was, that's, for a healthy growing church, that's, that's probably what you should expect. Do you remember the first series that you did or the first message that you did? So funny. I do. I don't know any church planner that doesn't. Uh, ours was turning houses into homes. Wow. That's good. Kind of went after this broad kind of unchurched families and it was called turning houses into homes. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. I, I'm fascinated by by you saying you didn't want to go anywhere you weren't wanted, because I think this is what a lot of church plants struggle with. They go into an area and launch a church, and they find out that the other churches aren't all excited about them being there, because sometimes they come in with a uh, church for those who hate church mentality, and the assumption is that everybody there is doing it wrong, and so they kind of already put their foot in their mouth with other churches. So how did you go to the existing churches and for lack of a better term, ask permission. How did you know you were welcomed? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I think you're right. I think that there's, let me just go ahead and say that a lot of existing churches, the spirit is not warm toward church planners, not because there isn't a need for church planners, but because they're very um, threatened by them and because they view other churches as a competition. And I think that's just sorted mm-hmm. and has no place in the kingdom. But I also think that on the other hand, there's a lot of church planners who uh, just kind of pick where they want to live. Mm. They just kind of pick where they think things are growing or things are happening or or where they would feel most whatever. And they just go and then they announce to everybody once they're there that they're there. And oh, by the way, since while we're here and since I'm telling you this, give me some money and support and everything else. And those local churches had no investment in that, no sense of praying for them, no sense of saying, hey, yeah, there's a need, but it's over here. But you're wanting to plant where there's already 15 other churches that have been planted in the last 15 months. And you're not even able to find a school movie theater or even a vacant lot to rent. I mean, there's some things where when you work with people who are there, it's very helpful. And so um, for me, I, I just felt very strongly. That I wanted to be sent, you know, and I wanted to be called, mm. and I wanted I just because I, I was I was so terrified of the of the 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 significance of of the undertaking that I didn't want to do anything even risk that I so want I just wanted if there's one thing I, I wanted to be confident in is that God was in it God was in the calling 
I could handle any outcome as long as I felt God was in the calling. Hmm. So we were willing to go anywhere in the United States. That's how it started. We'll go anywhere. And we'll go anywhere in the world, but we just assume, you know, but we just, we'll go anywhere. So that's how we started. And I think that was a healthy place to start. Where were you living at the time? Because um, I just felt like that was one of the biggest needs of church planning. And, um, but just doors got shut and nothing happened there. And hmm. uh, it's ironic that I ended up being this president of a seminary that was rooted in New England, is one of his main campuses, Gordon Conwell. But, uh, but I thought I was going to plant a church there and that was shut. And then I thought, okay. You know, uh, all these different doors got shut. And then I, 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 and I was writing to various directors of missions and denominational agencies and saying, you know, is there a need for church planning? I, you know, and, you know, where, where might there be a need? And here's the fun story. Um, I got a, I got a, I was uh, working in Nashville at the time. And when I came into the office one morning, working for denomination, and uh, there was a, a note for me that a pastor in Charlotte had tried to call me. Now, at that particular point in time, nobody knew that Susan and I were thinking about wrestling with planning a church and putting out feelers, and we're, we're trying to determine whether that was God's hand in our life. And so I called this guy up in Charlotte, and Charlotte had, you know, uh, was one of the places that we had kind of explored to see if there was any interest, among many others. And Charlotte was one of the few that had said yes. The local director of missions had said, yes, we'd love to talk to you about planting church. There's a huge need, particularly on the north side of Charlotte, which is where Charlotte may be growing in 10, 15 years. There's nothing there now but farmland. Uh, not exactly what a church planner wants to hear, but that's okay. You know, farmland. Okay, that's that's all right. Um, but uh, I got a call from this guy. His name is Bob Willard, friend friend to this day. And he called me and he said, I remember, I'll never forget a phone call. He said, Dr. White, uh, my name's Bob Willard. You don't know me. I went to one of your conferences. I read one of your books. He said, but uh, I meet with a group of other pastors, five or six of us here in Charlotte. And we get together and we pray uh, for new work, hmm. new churches, church plants. And the north side of Charlotte is in desperate need of new churches. And we don't even know why. But every time we pray, your name comes into our mind. Wow. And so I'm calling you on a lark, out of the blue. You're going to think I'm crazy to see if you've ever thought about church planning and if you've ever thought about the north side of Charlotte or then would be willing to consider north side of Charlotte. And that's like this theme for the twilight zones in the background. Yeah. And so that was, that was strong confirmation. It, oh, I'd say so. Um, <laughs> so we, we did. So we, 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 we pulled up everything and arrived in Charlotte about nine weeks before the start of the first service, we came down in like July mm. of 92 and had the first service October 4th. You know, those are the stories that keep you going during the dark night of the soul, don't you think? When you're having those really tough days in church and you think, I do know I was called here. I always tell church planners, you got to know you're supposed to be here. Otherwise, it, it'll be really tough. You do. Uh, you, you have to know that you're called. You have to know that that's God's hand in your life. You need to have burned your ships. Mm -hmm. And this wasn't just an option. This wasn't just something you did because you thought it would get you to a certain place. And if that doesn't get you to a certain place, you're just going to go somewhere else to get you to a certain place. Mm. Um, you, you, I think that you need to, to do it um, because you're also completely sold out to the mission and, and, and a way of doing that and achieving that mission. And you've got a vision so firmly in your mind and your heart that you, if you don't do this, you've got, you're going to die. Mm -hmm. It's like, do this or die. That's so good. Okay. So I've always wanted to ask you this. I just find, I find you to be fascinating because 
you have, like you said, one foot in the world of academia and the other in church planning. And usually when you meet a pastor, they're one way or the other. They're all well-read, every Sunday's a seminary class, or they've got a burning heart for unchurched people, and every Sunday is a, conduct, uh, is, is a combination of stand-up and uh, uh, cultural references. But you found a way to blend the two of them. Um, is that just kind of how you're naturally wired? How do you fan that into flame? I mean, what are the checks and balances to keep you from drifting too far one way or the other? Tell us a little bit about just how your mind works. <laughs> Oh, I, I do think it comes somewhat naturally for me because those are two passions of mine. I mean, I, do, I mean, to me, I, I, I care, I care greatly about theology. I care greatly about orthodoxy and, and biblical fidelity, mm-hmm. um, and have, you know, have, have trained for that, and 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 I and I and taught that as a professor. So I care about that because I care about orthodoxy. I care about the message. Um, and I and I do feel like in in many ways, it's interesting what you've just said. Like some people are like super into culture and like building those bridges of understanding and others. It's like a seminary class. To me, it, 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 let, me let me use two different nomenclatures, two different terms. Uh, some are really oriented toward grace and some are really oriented toward truth. Hmm. And of course, Jesus came bearing both. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the problem, that the, the culture people might tend a little bit more toward grace and the... Uh, you know, the, the people who are into academia might tend to live more toward truth. And yet the most powerful is when you bring truth and grace to bear together. And Jesus came bearing grace and truth in John 1. And so there was something about Jesus where he could meet the woman at the well, confront her with her serial promiscuity, and at the same time, her invite him to her keg party later that night to meet all of her friends. That, that kind of pulling that off has always to me seem like that's, that's the, that's the bell you want to ring. I also feel like after a while, if it's a steady diet of simply building cultural bridges then you become very little more than an Oprah and, uh, and pop psychology because, and, and you really don't have, as Thomas Merton once said, you don't have anything to offer the world that it doesn't already have. Hmm. And so what you really want to do is build that bridge, which is very needed. Um, and understand culture and to, to, but, 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 but there's a reason you're building that bridge. Mm-hmm. It's not a bridge to nowhere. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's a bridge that, where that you can meet across and, and you can confront and you can bring to bear what the world does not have. Um, and, and, and that truth with that was built on the bridge of grace. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I, I love the life of the mind. I love, being a student of culture, uh, to me, those are natural bed partners, bedmates, and I, I, I feel like it gives it gives um, it gives a, a. I remember what Billy Graham once saying that um, when he had his defining moment where he believed in scripture, to settle that for his life at that uh, retreat center in California. Um, if you know anything about his his life, and he had a moment where he had a friend named Chuck Templeton who was filling his head with all kinds of ideas that were going against belief in scripture, belief in the miraculous, et cetera. And Templeton was actually considered a better speaker than Billy at the time. And and uh, and Billy didn't know what to do with all of those uh, thoughts and ideas. And he went out and he laid his Bible out on this tree stump or a rock in, in, in the woods. And he said, God, I don't have answers for all this but I'm going to choose to believe. I'm going to choose to believe. Uh, 
And he said from that day on, his preaching had power like it never had before. And it was like every time he picked up the Bible, it was like wielding a sword. And of course, nobody's ever heard of Templeton hmm. to this day. Uh, uh, but Billy Graham, I mean, his story is told. He actually ended up a very sad life. Hmm. Um, Billy Graham, obviously, greatest evangelist of history. Um, I feel that way in a much smaller way in the sense that when I get up to deal with something, if I feel like I'm bringing grace and truth, if I feel like I've done my homework and I'm addressing something in a felt need or culture, or I've built a bridge through culture, or I'm speaking to cultural issues or in a way that mm-hmm. this culture can understand. So I've got that, but then I'm also bringing truth and I'm not, I'm not hiding that truth. Then there's a power, there's a confidence that I have, like I'm wielding a sword that I, 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 you know, I, I wouldn't have any other way. Hey, let me interrupt for just a second. If you're a church leader and your church does not have an app or your app seems to be a little bit limited, check out subsplash.com as a great resource to really give your app all the horsepower that it needs. You can connect people, you can help them get access to messages, and you can help them set up recurring giving, which is a game changer when it comes to resourcing your ministry. Subsplash.com. Okay, back to our episode. Uh, One of your... uh, things that you offer society, which is so amazing, especially churches, is your blog, um, Church and Culture. I, I love this because you help fill in some of these gaps for us. Um, you connect these two things, uh, church and and, uh, and culture. So I'm curious because there's so many resources out there to kind of help us understand culture. Is there anything in particular that you use to kind of keep your finger on the pulse of culture? Rather than spending endless hours just rolling through BuzzFeed and Google, uh, what, what do you look at to kind of help you stay current? Well, first of all, I'm really glad that you raised that. And first of all, thank you for your kind words on the blog. I, um, the, 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 what I felt, and I still feel this to a degree, but is that there, there really are, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, it's like, it's like there's two sides. You've got people who, who are in the academic world. And when they study culture, it's basically to, dis- to despise it, to critique it, to find fault with it, or to see where the church is selling out in some way. And then you have on the church side of things, uh, where culture is, is, is like, you know, they're like a kid in a candy shop. I mean, I, I can't get enough of culture. I can't bring culture enough to bear. I can't, I can't embrace culture enough. I, I want to be identified with culture in the minds of people. It's like, you know, it's like Sally Field at the Academy Awards. You like me, you like me. It's like, we want people to like us. And so there's, there's this, this, and I've, I felt like these two worlds were just missing each other. And yet they both needed each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, academia needed to see that culture is, is our mission field and you better understand your mission field. And just like any good missionary, you better learn that language. You better learn that dress code. You better learn everything indigenous you possibly can, because that's you better translate the scriptures for, for that people you're trying to reach. And why did we all of a sudden forget all of Missiology 101 when it comes to, you know, a church? Yes. And so in culture. So I felt like academia was missing that side of it. And I felt like the church was almost feeling like, well, the whole thing is just making sure that it's culturally relevant or culturally identifiable. Well, no, it's really not. It's to build that bridge, but then to give them what's absolutely the most countercultural thing on the planet, mm-hmm. which is the message of, of, of Jesus and, 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 and the values that come with the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's what I have found. And, and, you know, Mecca is, is, 
is reaches a lot of unchurched people. We have um, throughout our whole history, 70% or more of our total growth has come from people who are unchurched. I know that's a staggeringly high number, but that's what it is. Mm-hmm. So over 70% of everybody we've ever reached has come from an unchurched background. What I have found is that the average person who is unchurched um, doesn't mind me serving up a stiff dose of truth. They want to know how I'm going to do it and how I'm going to say it, whether I've done my homework, whether they can respect it, hmm. and um, and whether they can identify with me. And and so these are all key things. Um, so I, I I I do think that it's it's needed to kind of mm-hmm. play off a little bit of of your question and and what I'm trying to do with the blog and other resources that we're trying to put out the church and culture conference that we have and annually and books and various other things is to help people bring these two worlds together, the church and culture, the church and its mission field mm-hmm. and, and how to communicate and best reach that mission field to bring that together into this wonderful synergistic, um, um, power, uh, that is effective. And that's one of the reasons why I do think that every pastor, every leader must be a student of culture because, I mean, culture is constantly changing. Right. So if you're doing things now the way you did them even five years ago, sometimes even five months ago, yeah. you could be dead in the water culturally because things are constantly changing. And Mech has constantly changed throughout its time because of changing culture that we just went through. Which we can talk about it if you want to, but I mean, we don't have to, but we just went through one of the most massive changes in the whole 30 one or two year run about three years ago, completely changed everything. Um, so, you know, you're constantly doing these things if you're going to stay abreast of culture. And you're speaking about how you shut down your multi-site strategy and came back to one campus. Is that right? Well, larger than that, that was part of an overarching approach to becoming a hybrid model, a hybrid church, which was, okay. I just released a book on this called hybrid church which was uh, one of the more, I, I think probably the most seminal book I've ever written. And, 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 and I say that, I say that with great gratitude toward my father. Um, it was three years of research and writing longest there's ever been between any of my books. And, and, and I, I kind of joked with people, it was, it was like three years in the writing and a lifetime in the making of, of vocational ministry. Um, it, it, it uh, the hybrid is the bringing together the physical and the digital Mm-hmm. and and how that really is the new reality. You know, one of the things, the thing to understand about culture right now, I, um, I think, is that there has been, for only the third time in all of church history, a revolution in our mission field and how we communicate with it. Mm-hmm. You go all the way back to the beginning of the Christian movement, and you look at the mission field, it was pre-Christian. It was filled with Jews, uh, pagans or Gentiles and Judaizing Gentiles. And the way of communicating to that field was largely oral. Mm-hmm. I mean, even when Paul would write like a letter to the Corinth, the Corinthians, it was read, you know, if you know, it, the letters always read to the church assembled. It was an oral based culture. Fast forward to the conversion of Constantine and, and the beginning of the spread of Christianity in the Roman world and throughout the Western world. And you had the beginning of the Christian world hmm. and that culture. So we went from pre-Christian to Christian. And the way we communicated with that field was largely um, written. Mm-hmm. And then later mechanized writing. But it was a context decisively Christian. That was our mission field. So no 
you know, surprised that when that written form of communication mechanized, like with Gutenberg's press, the first thing that rolled off of it was, of course, a Bible. Hmm. And so you had that as like, and I call that the first version, like Church 1.0, and then for the Christian world and written communication, Church 2.0. And for only the third time, we've just now experienced in the West um, a change in both our mission field and the way of communicating with it. And once again, it happens simultaneously. It's fascinating from a socio-historical mindset. So we went from pre-Christian oral, Christian written, to now post-Christian digital. Mm-hmm. And I argue for church 3.0, you know, and which is hybrid, the hybrid church, not all digital, mm-hmm. but a blending of the physical and the digital. The, and, and that's the changing nature of our mission field and how to reach it. And so, yes, we, we, we looked at many things like the, the, the multi-site model was largely designed to break down geographic barriers. Mm. What if the barriers aren't geographic? What if the barriers are digital? And what if the real way of reaching people has become more digital based than it has been geographic based? And, um, and so this is pre COVID. This is back in 99. I mean, 2019, we did this. It was very conscious. Our sites were doing well. The church was doing well. It wasn't anything like that. It was very long, arduous process of rethinking strategy, reading culture, what was happening. And I remember the defining moment for me was, was a budget cycle. Uh, where all this had been churning around in me for probably at least two years. Um, because the digital revolution really has taken place really from 2007 on. I mean, 2007 was really the key mm-hmm. year. And I get into that in the book mm-hmm. with the chapter called What the Blank Happened in 2007. So Donovan, let me get away with it. Um, but it was, it, was, uh, it was a quote from Thomas Friedman. Um, yeah. But the, the, we have seen a budget cycle and the we were dealing with all these things like with every budget, I don't care what size church you are, how long you've been. I don't care. Every budget cycle is, is so painful because you so much you want to do and you can't do, and you got realities and all this kind of stuff. And so, and I was just, uh, just bursting with all the things that I knew we needed to do in terms of the digital revolution to really reach people effectively. What we need to do in terms of completely rebuilding our web, our, our website because it wasn't really built like most websites still aren't for app integration, integration with apps and, and mobile technology and, and how, and, and also um, uh, how the building itself wasn't fidgetal, you know, physical and digital fidget, fidgetal in nature in terms of mm-hmm. uh, making the most of that and, and how we just, what you could do with digital marketing and Google and so many other different things. I mean, on and on and on and on and when of all the things we could do that could just reach so many people. And then there was our online campus, which, we had debuted and, and before, long before COVID, but it's like, oh, we could do that and fully staffing it like we would any other campus and what we, that, reaching that redemptive potential. And I was looking at what it would do to take that. And I was looking at all the money going into these physical sites. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at like, like, uh, like the thousands upon thousands we could reach this way. And yes, the great numbers we were reaching through the physical sites, but man, the cost differential and everything else was just making me just want to go throw up in a corner. Mm-hmm. And um, it kind of reminded me of, um, you know, the, in the old days, you'd have churches say, yeah, we're going to have a hundred people go out door to door visitation. And then at the end of that day, they would say, we had three people come to Christ and they would say, see, and I would always say, gosh, what if you took those hundred people and did something that resulted in, 
3,300 people coming to Christ. You know, I, that's the way my mind works. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, you know, the money we are spending in these sites, which is, as anyone knows who's done the models, expensive, which is fine if it's missional. Mm-hmm. But I was looking at what that same money or even less could do digital. And it just made me sick. Mm. And so we made, we made the shift and instantly, instantly, the Sunday following the closing of all of our sites, we had massive increase in attendance at our one remaining physical campus, as well as all across our digital platforms. And we never looked back. And we just, just, we've never had growth like we've experienced since, and it hasn't let up. And uh, so I, I, best decision I ever made. And, and not just because of what happened with COVID, right. You know, a few months later and everybody had to go online, <laughs> best decision I ever made independent of that. So a lot of people would nod their head and say, oh yeah, we have an online offering, which basically means a camera in the back of the room streaming the service on YouTube or something. And then that's it. But it's so much bigger than that. Can you talk to uh, our church leaders out there about, here's what you should be thinking about. Here's what you could do with it. Here's where you might be missing it. I wrote a whole book on that. <laughs> you right. to put it in a soundbite. I'd, without sounding self-serving, I would strongly encourage them to get hold of hybrid church right? Um, and read that. And they would see a comprehensive, um, what it means for community and ministry and, and, and everything else and outreach and, and just, uh, just the that and you're right though it, it is so much more than just streaming something online mm-hmm. it's it's a it's an entire new way of thinking and it's like it's almost like it's almost like if you've if you've trained yourself uh which i'm sure many of your listeners have to think how would this be for an unchurched person how would this be for an unchurched person how would they view this? How can we how can we how can we develop this in light of reaching unchurched people? If you've developed a mindset where you're constantly forcing everything through that 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 prism. Okay, now now add something to that. Add a second thing to that. How does this translate digitally? Mm-hmm. How does this translate online? How does this, you know, I'm trying to reach this unchurched person who is online. Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to trying to do church in a way and to, to lead the church in a digital age, and and it it is completely holistic and comprehensive, and it is you know this is such an overused term, but in this case it it is true. It is a paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. It is a fundamental rethinking of strategy, mm-hmm. and one of the most significant, probably the most significant in my lifetime. If there was if there was an earlier shift in strategy where churches began to be just more outreach focused and just thought thinking about the unchurched person and what it would mean to throw open the front doors of the weekend. I remember back in the late eighties, you know, I wrote a little book called opening the front door, you know, Hey, the, the worship service is where the average person is going to check you out. Maybe make it a little friendlier, maybe little guest services, maybe adjust the temperature. So it's comfortable. (laughs) You know, just anything, anything to, to think about that. But that whole thing set off, you know, with uh, Willow Creek in 1975, starting in Saddleback in 1980. And that just began this whole movement of of things and of churches that, that really began to think outwardly focused. Mac in 92. 
Mm. Um, and, um, in terms of, of being, uh, of thinking that way. And if that was a significant shift in churches, just becoming outreach focused, really thinking that way about the unchurched and letting that have implications strategically, that, that is, um, um, I would, I would argue that the church throughout its 2000 year history has had moments where it got more outreach oriented and had, had renovations and reformations that, facilitated that. Mm -hmm. I would say that the Protestant Reformation was that. Martin Luther using the printing press for the 95 Theses and using barroom tunes from the Wittenberg bar circuit for tunes like A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is a barroom tune. Exactly. And using popular music for the day and translating the Bible into vernacular German. I mean, some of the stuff that a lot of us maybe felt like was innovative. It was innovative for our day and age, but really it's had, had pockets of it happening throughout all of church history. This is new. The digital revolution is new. This is a true transformation of strategy that the church must wake up to. And it is probably second only to probably the invention of the printing press. I completely agree. And we were on the online campus mindset before COVID. And I'm so grateful we were because we were able to pivot rather quickly, our people. And I think what people are wondering now is, okay, I, I, I'm... I believe in the digital revolution, absolutely. And I think your book, Hybrid Church, is beautiful at explaining all of this. But there's a, a bastion of people out there in churches saying, yeah, but you got to enter the house of the Lord. Now we can you know, get into the semantics of that, and it's a little bit different than a building, obviously. But does your online campus exist to move people into an actual physical gathering, or can someone be a part of Mech and never even gather with another group of people how have you kind of answered that question neither okay and here's what i mean by that okay i would say that for okay and and so let me take it sequentially number one i would not we, we do not have as the goal of the online campus to get you into an embodied experience or to get you into an in-person physical service that's not our goal we're very if online is where you attend that's where you attend that's fine that's legit and that's affirmed but I would say that if you say so, but uh, but is it okay that you never gather? See, but we consider that a gathering and we treat it like a gathering and we facilitate it like a gathering. And through chat rooms and experiences and things that happen the rest of the, the other six days of the week, I mean, we're we are creating an, uh, an online community. And this is one of the things that mm. I think is critical to understand is that we have, we have a, a very outdated understanding of community. And so the average church leader, and I'm, I don't say this in a condescending way, I, I just, it's just observationally. The average church leader has no idea how strong community is, for example, within the gaming community or Twitch community or the kind of uh, community that's so deep within people under the age of, say, 30 with, um, you know, through TikTok and through online and to where that's almost their primary form of community, even more than face-to-face -face or in person. Mm. And I just don't, I just think that we don't understand how community itself has morphed and evolved and changed into, and to, so that we're, we're putting old definitions on what it means to be community and even old sensibilities. Like, well, if it's not face-to-face -face, and obviously we just can't, we, you can't do community that way. Well, it's good. You got a lot of people who say, well, sorry to inform you, but we do and you can. And, 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 um, and there is, um, uh, a sense of, of, of there are certain things that I do think are best embodied. And there are certain, that's why I, I argue for a hybrid model, not a digital model. But, uh, um, but I also think that there's so many things that we put our own sensibilities and tastes around mm -hmm. and we say, well, you can't do it that way. And all that means is you don't like doing it that way. 
Right. It's almost like people used to say, well, I don't like Kindle and you're anti-Kindle because you don't want to read a book that way. Okay. But a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. So don't say that reading a book on Kindle isn't reading a book. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the mindset with some people. And that's why I would often tell my, uh, do tell my, my seminary students, my graduate students, uh, be very careful about building theological fences around personal taste. Mm. Don't do that. Um, that's that's dangerous. That's 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 not good. That's not good thinking. And so, one of the things that we're doing is is that we're we're offering the online campus as a full campus, fully pastored, fully led, building community. And I go into that at great length in the book to try to open people's minds to what that really looks like. And we wouldn't be able to get into all of that here, but I would encourage people to look at that because there really is robust community online and, and, um, and it can be, and should be. And if the church doesn't go there, we're going to miss, we're going to lose this generation. Do you pre-record your messages for the online campus or are they simply coming from uh, your physical location or how are you communicating with online? It's a great question. We completely develop our online campus separately from our in-person, meaning we curate the content so it is designed for consumption, online consumption. Now, is it the same talk? Are some of the songs the same that the creative team puts together or whatever the elements are creatively? Um, yeah, but I mean, it's different. It's shorter. Mm-hmm. Uh, our in-person services are 60 to 65 minutes. Our online per- services are between 40, 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a reason for that because it's just online attention spans and such. Mm-hmm. Um, we, um, the way we film the worship or whatever that is, music elements might be, the worship elements, the way we film that is different. And there's a lot of free freedom and creativity with that. I mean, they could be on a hillside. They could be... And a thousand things, just the creativity is so boundless there. Mm-hmm. Um, I film my talk specifically for the online campus, for the online campus. I mean, I do that. Um, and so it's not something that was taken from a stage, which is so clearly not designed. And when you're speaking to online, our online campus, I'm, I'm talking to one person. Uh, maybe, it's, maybe a couple or a family at best, but I'm, I'm talking it's a very much a more intimate setting. Mm. And so I, I actually film it that way and film it differently. So I, I actually, I film for the online campus on Wednesdays, okay, uh, specifically for the online campus for that weekend. And then I'm, I'm delivering that talk live, if you will, mm-hmm. in person the following weekend. I have noticed uh, by being a part of both campuses, uh, just the difference in uh, kind of the way that you communicate with the camera and and with the room, and I mean, it's it's brilliant. I, I would like to ask you this, and I want to honor your time. So, even though I have about a thousand other questions, I'll ask you one more. You've been doing this thirty years. You've always had this heartbeat to reach unchurched people. Um, how has teaching changed from nineteen ninety two when it began to where you are now in 2023. Obviously, you know, you wrote this great book on the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, um, and, and uh, what that means, and people are growing up with, you know, not identifying with any kind of religious background. But how do you think your teaching has changed to connect with unchurched people versus what it was back in the 90s? I think you're able to throw a rock and hit both camps now in a way that you couldn't before. And what I mean both camps is meaning both Christians and non-Christians that their, their questions have conflated. They, they often share the same questions. Huh. And so that I can develop a series as flamingly 
you know, for non-Christians and their issues. And I've got Christians lining up saying, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I've always wanted to hear a series on this. This is so helpful for me. Like, for example, I did a series on recently called uh, The Bloody Bible. And where I dealt with all of the Christopher Hitchens and uh, Dawkins, uh, Richard Dawkins stuff about God being a moral monster with things like the wiping out of the the people in the Old Testament and such. And, 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 and you know, Isaac being offered up and, and just all the bloody Bible, just the parts that people go, what? <laughs> you know? Right. Right. Um, uh, and, and it was one of those that dealt with a lot of questions that non-Christians had about stuff um, because their problem wasn't with God. Their problem was with the God of the Bible and then dealing with Christians who have gaping discipleship holes and questions they never felt were, were legal to ask. So I think that's one thing. Now you can just, we can just throw a rock and you can hit both camps. And um, that's, that's wonderful. Another thing that I found, it's a, it's an intriguing question. Another thing that I found is that um, early on, the typical unchurched person that came to Mac, they would have assumed they were a Christian hmm. and you had to spend about six to nine months convincing them that they weren't hmm. or making, you know, putting it forth in such a, raw and unfiltered way that they realized that they weren't, they had cultural Christianity, like, you know, they liked baseball and they hated communism. They were a Christian. <laughs> and so it took about six to nine months for them to kind of realize that they weren't. And then they would be, you know, and then you could lead them to becoming one. Now it's different. They absolutely come in clear in their mind that they're not a Christian, anything but a Christian. And then you have to spend that same six to nine months helping them understand that what they have been rejecting as Christianity isn't the real thing. So in both cases, you're presenting the real thing is there's some similarities there. In both cases, they go on a journey where what they had in their mind as, as what they felt about Christianity, either that they were one or that they absolutely weren't one. You, you kind of, you, you deconstruct that with them and for them. And then to the point where you can, they're ready to entertain it for their lives, the real thing for their lives. So I think that's, those are some of the big differences. Hmm. That's so good. Well, brother, I really appreciate your time. And even more than that, I appreciate all your books, all your podcasts. Uh, I, I want to encourage everybody to pick up the book, Hybrid Church, wherever books are sold. Uh, church and Culture blog, website, podcast. It's in Mecklenburg Community Church. I have the app. I listen all the time. It's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, friend. Well, thank you to Dr. White for being with us. I so value his books and his insight. And check out uh, more from him and subscribe to his blog, Church and Culture. It's just a great read as to understanding and processing what's going on out there. Hey, next week, we'll be back. We're getting ready for Christmas season. And I want to give you a new member of the nativity scene. You may have never thought about this before, and I really didn't until recently. But this is a fascinating look at a verse in Revelation that reminds us there was someone else at the nativity scene. We'll be back next week, and as always, keep it simple.